Hey everybody, before we get to this episode about John Wick 3, we just have a quick announcement to make. Tonebenders is holding a sound design meetup in Austin, Texas. So if you live there or can get there for January 9th, we're holding it at 7pm at the Austin Beer Garden and Brewery, 1305 West Oldorf Street. Going to be people hanging out, lifting some glasses and telling stories, sharing our victories and our defeats. So it'll be a lot of fun. It would be lovely to meet you both. Renee and Tim will be there. So if you can make it out again, Thursday, January 9th, 7 p.m. in Austin, Texas at the Austin Beer Garden and Brewery. Hope to see as many out there as we can. Okay, on to the show. to Tone Benders, the Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. Hey everybody, welcome to Tone Benders. I will be your host today. I'm Tim Muirhead. We have the honor of having the team behind the John Wick movies, particularly John Wick 3 Parabellum, which was just announced as a nominee for the Golden Reel in the Motion Picture Sound Editors Association category for Best Feature Sound Effects and Foley. Congratulations. Yeah, congrats. Thanks. Congrats to the editing team. Phenomenal yeah, job. Thanks by very all. much. Yeah, that's really awesome. So let's uh, say who we're talking to here. Let's welcome to the show Mark Steckinger. You've heard Mark's work on Prometheus, the 2009 Star Trek, Straight Outta Compton, and over 100 other films. Mark, you've been on all three John Wick films. Do you now have the world's largest library of body impacts after this trilogy? Strangely enough, I think it's heading that way, yes. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of uh, John Wick 3, uh, Evan Schiff, the editor, asked for anything we could send him that relates, and he got quite a file full. <laughs> I can imagine. We also have on the line Andy Koyama, who is the re-recording mixer. Were you doing dialogue? Or yeah, dialogue music, yes. Andy has an Oscar nomination for Peter Berg's Lone Survivor in 2014. In addition to all three John Wick movies, in this year alone, he has mixed Five Feet Apart, Peanut Butter Falcon, Velvet Buzzsaw, Late Night, Lady and the Tramp. He's never had a day off in 2019, it would appear. Andy, I'm talking to you from Toronto today. You have a history in this town, right? Yeah, I grew up in Toronto, went to school at University of Toronto and started in the uh, post-production business up there. And then I moved down to L.A. in 2000 and I'm, and I'm enjoying no winters. <laughs> well, we're just entering the winter here, so don't rub it in, okay? John Wick 3 came out, and I think that the legacy of the three movies so far is that you guys have upped the ante on the battle sequences, the gunshots, the swords, the punch impacts. They're all hyper-real, hyper-awesome, and just knock you on your ass when you're in the theater watching it. It's the kind of movie that you want to see in the theater because the big sound, the big speakers, make it amazing to be a part of. And the head count in these movies is alarming. So if you're into the sound of guns and punches and such, uh, these are the movies for you. As I mentioned in the intro, there's so much fighting. How do you guys find a way to differentiate amongst all of the millions of bullets that are shot off and punches that are hit? Where do you find the variety? Uh, well, I mean, I'll start with that one. The variety just comes from trying a lot of different things and really concentrating on the variety so nothing really feels monotonous. I think that's one of the special aspects of the John Wick films is that 
nothing sounds like the same sound over and over again, or at least hopefully not. And with the goal of just creating a lot of, you know, a lot of frequency divisions, depending on what sort of sequences you're going to be playing against. And in fact, you know, what your, your sound competition is going to be, be it music or other sounds. So you give uh, Martin as much opportunity as he can to blend different aspects of a punch or a gunshot or a bullet hit so it reads and it's different, uh, can sort of keep the energy going. Yeah, I know, Martin, on you know, individual gunshots or punches may have 10 to 20 different elements for each one. And by massaging interior balances from those sounds, depending on the perspective of where the gun is, you know, when it's really close up, you may feature different mechanical elements of the gun far away, maybe more boomy elements or whatever. You can vary the sound of the gun in, in a scene uh, with a lot of flexibility. I mean, the sounds are organized in that way. So it's like, okay, it needs to be off stage, so we're going to drop these sounds. It's really in your face, so we're going to widen this. Cumulatively, that's what gives it the variety that the track has. I kind of feel like you guys set yourself up in a trap because the guns are huge right out of the box. And then the plot of this film, in the end, the bad guys come in with special armor on that the bullets can't pierce. So John Wick has to go back and get special armor-piercing bullets that have to sound even bigger and even more explosive. How did you tackle that? Uh, by listening to our director, Chad. It's all very <laughs> important to him. So um, how do we tackle that? Well, as everybody speaks about their craft, it's all about story. And the story in this, at least for the understanding of the audience, is that you're right. The bullets or the first round of bullets do not penetrate the armor. So the whole idea was to make the impacts as metallic thuddy as possible. So it got that point across. I mean, we're used to sounds of bullets that, you know, basically hit flesh, to be honest about it, or rip into clothes or what that might be. But this was purely metal impacts. I mean, well, some cloth rips, too, is because it's hitting sort of a body armor that's that they're wearing. Chad was very specific and Evan Schiff, the editor, very specific in working that different sound in. Um, as a matter of fact, Evan and his team contributed one of the metal hits for the the bullets that don't penetrate the armor because uh, they were able to try some things with Chad and we collaboratively did that here and together, the accumulation of about three different sounds tell that part of the story. Martin's of the, the guy who makes the effects and did a lot of the sound design as well, tried some new processing on three that we hadn't tried in the previous films. What did he use? He, there was uh, some of the great glass impacts in that big armor-piercing shotgun. He ran, he was using plug-and-mix clarophonics, I believe it's called. It's kind of a low-end enhancer. Clarophonics, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like, un- unlike anything I've ever heard, and those glass, when the body hits on the glass floor and the shotgun, it just gave this weight to it, insane, which was really great, Like unlike anything I've ever heard before. I think that shotgun's my favorite gun sound I've ever heard. Yeah, I know, I know. Alan Rankin, who who does all the gun work and all the wicks, 
I mean, he would even use a dedicated subtrack that he would uh, even process the subtrack in low ender too, just to kind of give it a really tight sound. And, you know, it's, it's very specific. It can be, it's not always a tick. It's usually something that's uh, three to four to five frames long, sort of depending, just to help Martin give him some more uh, tools to work with. He was also using, uh, didn't he start using that API uh, compressor, the 2500 yes. on, on the guns buzz. That was the first time I think he did on this show. You know, it's great. It's a great sounding compressor on drums, but it sort of gave it a fatness that we have, haven't had. But right. It worked really well. And it was really evident if it like, oh, it's not in line or it's not on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, so it made that much of a difference to us. And I can't say that John Wick 3 had a, many new recordings. It didn't have specifically any new recordings when it came to guns, but it did have amount of editorially crafted material again just to give that frequency division of like low medium and high and maybe a couple elements for low when it comes to something like the shotgun that's going to live in that frequency range more than other weapons yeah it's become my reference material every time i go into a new room i play that shotgun to see how it's playing (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing at one point in the big lobby shootout in the continental there were some guns that I felt kind of almost felt like the snare in the 80s Phil Collins songs that reverse gate. <laughs> I was wondering if there was some kind of special uh, sauce going into those. That might have had that effect a little bit. I'm sure it had that effect. I mean, if you're talking about the machine guns that the Black Op guys use, they actually went through three iterations of that before it landed on something that Chad really liked. You know, they looked very suppressed. And if you want to play it that way, which was round one, they're just not as visceral as every, as it needs to be for your antagonist in a scene. So then backed off a little bit. Alan, again, Alan Rankin, who did all that work, um, finally got to the point where it was pretty much like an MP5, a um, little bit of suppressor sort of melded in there just to give it a more of a unique sound. Well, it works really well. One thing that was kind of new on this series was a lot of the work in the glass room. There's a lot of new sounds there. I was particularly liked when the swords were cutting the glass. I thought that was in, I think that was primarily Foley, right, Mark? Yeah, Dan O'Connell did a lot of that, um, really manipulated that. And then uh, Martin and Alan, um, you know, processed some lower frequency elements to go along with it. So it had that, again, that little bit of a, a sub tickle where necessary and something just to help the low frequency since the Foley definitely got the mid range and the high frequency out of it. Dealing with glass is always hard. It's hard to record because yeah. there's so many sharp transients in it. And to get it on down into the stem with a nice, you know, punchy and transient sound is tricky. And then, Tim, one thing, we were talking a lot about the sound effects, but the dialogue content of this is really important. And it's really important that Andy is able to save so much of the original recordings that, you know, David Schwartz works as hard as he can to get in those tough environments that they shoot in because looping it all. And there's, there's a fair amount of ADR sewn in, but it's primarily production. And that's what I think gives it the feel that is just really great. Like in that glass sword fight area, you you first listen to it like, Oh man, we can't use this. But Andy found a way to make it work and use it. When they're shooting those fight scenes, you know, Keanu and all the stunt players and all the actors are actually grunting and groaning and there's impacts and all that is woven into the sound effects track, and it just gives it that visceral reality 
because you feel what's actually happened during the shooting of the scene. And, you know, we spent a long time trying to sneak little grunts in and out and get it as punchy and loud so it can hold up to the sound effects as possible. And that's kind of unique to the John Wick films, how much of the production sound of the fights is actually in the mix. Yeah, and it was good because, like Andy said, that the, the actors are really doing that. And Chad, starting from a stuntman background, that's really important to him. I mean, he coaches all of his stunt performers to uh, integrate that as part of what they do, and it's fantastic. Um, and you talk about body fall libraries over the course of three films, but we've also got a library of, of efforts that uh, Keanu does. So, uh, you know, if we don't have something that works really well in production, we can maybe dive into a previous film and, and, and weave that in. One thing I wanted to talk about in the John Wick soundscape is, as definitely known for all the fights and the guns and all that, I think the production design in the film is just so interesting and rich that it inspires a lot of sound work that can be atmospheric and non-literal at times or create different feels in different spaces or just give the opportunity to put some weird sounds in to define our characters. That's a really fun part of the film. From Grand Central Station where Zero and, and Wick meet to anything with the Bowery King and even in the glass house at the end, there's a lot of Let's say non-literal sound design, you know, maybe inspired by different things, but just becomes really part of the track and the movie for sure. Yeah, that scene where the, um, they're down by the furnaces with the adjudicator. You guys had all sorts of interesting rhythmic uh, sound, sound design going on there. It gave the impression of this huge industry of evil that is the, the, the whole the hotel association. Uh, it was a really, there's some really cool sound design in that scene as well. Well, the idea was that it's almost like a meat processing plant <laughs> going through so many uh, different uh, victims. But it all started with the production had this really high jet sound for the furnace that was in the background, and every angle sounded different. So Andy and Paul Carden, our dialogue supervisor, were able to work and get the vast majority of that out. And sometimes what's left with and you want to mask with other sounds inspires the direction you go in with your additive sounds. Yeah, that was some challenging. That, that scene, yeah, because the gas furnaces had a very specific whines, which were not constant at all. It took a lot of work in isotope to, you know, mitigate that stuff. Also, all the scenes with underneath the Brooklyn Bridge were, as you can imagine, extremely noisy with traffic, and those were challenging. And rain. Rain and traffic at the same time. And a lot, there's a lot of night shots with rain, and uh, Chad, at the very beginning, would say, guess what? There's a lot of production problems, but we're not going to loop anything, so <laughs> have fun. Yeah, very little was looped for, yeah, for background, for technical reasons. Almost very, very little in the film. We, it's almost all production. Yeah. Uh, you guys just went through about seven of my questions that I was going to ask <laughs> on that run. So great job. <laughs> to reiterate, the the sound of the swords on the glass was one of my favorite sounds. Yeah, I love really that great. sound. I'm, gl really I'm glad that you guys talked about that because that one really uh, catches your ear and sounds just super cool and unlike anything I've ever heard before in a film. So I was really excited about that sound. But the other glass sound that I thought was amazing that just knocks you over as the characters are literally being knocked over is when Keanu is kicked into the large glass display cases and they explode. Yes. Oh yeah. That is a cool sound. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, that's a combination of sound effects and Foley as well. I mean, Foley typically handled, handled all the debris and the detail within, and sound handled, um, you know, the, the vast majority of the impact. You know, and again, there's some treated lower frequency glass sounds in there to give it the weight, so it's just not all bright and you know, like piercing you in the ear. So, <laughs> um, fortunately, that was part of it. Interestingly enough, in that sequence, the, the only practical one that broke was the first one. All the rest didn't time out right, and they had to visually put those in, and uh, comes across seamlessly, which is pretty fantastic. Wow, that's a neat trick they did. I can't even imagine how they did that. Hey, one other one other thing that sort of relates to the visual aspect and how it relates to sound is, as you can imagine, there's a ton of bullet hits, and not many of them were practical. A lot of them were added after the fact. Mm-hmm. So as we went through the mix, we were able to take our 7-1 effect stem and send it to the picture department, and they'd come back with a list of copious notes as far as we're going to add one here. Oop, that one's two frames out of sync. You know, as visual effects come in and things change. So that was a huge help through the process to keep all that together. It's And it was rare. That's something I've never experienced, that level of uh, attention to detail. Super helpful, though, because, you know, every time we got a visual effects film, then all the effects revisions come in and things are changed sync. There's a new spaceship in the shot that no one told us about. (laughs) And it was so helpful to have editorial be able to take the master and go through and, you know, and just an extra set of eyes to keep, keep everything in line. It was fantastic. Yeah. With so many sync moments that could go horribly wrong at the last minute, as they always challenge in most films, that was great to have that advantage. Yeah, it's always great when you're on the printmaster and you go, oh, my God, what happened to that shot? It's not a sync now. Yeah. Oh, no, it's too late. (laughs) Talk me through this again. You were doing the sound effects edit and then sending it to the picture department, or was this post-mix? During the mix, during the final of the mix, you know, we would do, say, Reel 6, which happened to be the reel with uh, the Continental shootout all the way through the, the glass house and all those sword scenes. And as you can imagine, a ton of visual effects. Or Real 4, the whole shootout in Riyadh with uh, Halle Berry. So many sound, so many visuals were added during that, that as we'd mix, we were generating a 7-1 stem. 5-1 stem? 7-1 stem? 7-1 stem. And Evan had set his picture department up to, you know, polyphonic, uh, you know, avid session. So we could send literally just our stems without any other work to the picture department and the visual effects editor and a couple of the assistants, basically whoever had the time and could give it attention could go through with their picture timeline and see what's changed or what's been adjusted or, you know, basically if we're a little bit behind, we're going to have some things that are out of sync based on the previous picture that we had. And so um, they could help us with those notes because with, you know, five or six hits happening in, in frames in a couple frames it's really hard to track all that it's like you're like is that the same is that different is that so it was great to have somebody that was in the know to go through it um with a fine tooth comb for us i always love when you hear about the different departments having good dialogue yeah it doesn't always happen so it's inspirational when you hear about it i would say that's one of the unique aspects of these john wick films is that having worked on three of them and with virtually the same people for all three that it's a real strong camaraderie that lends itself to that kind of workflow. You know, everybody knows everybody, everybody works together, everybody's got a shorthand for communication, or look can look ahead and know what they might need 
just in time or before they need it, which really, really helps. Yes, it takes a long time, but if everybody's on the same page that way, through all departments, visual effects, picture editorial, sound editorial, mixing, you name it. So, Well, speaking of communication to be between departments, Andy, I can't imagine the difficulty of trying to weave music, never mind dialogue, but music through some of these scenes. Like the Continental Lobby shootout is just nonstop bullets for like large chunks of time, and yet there's still music going. How did you find space for it? Well, it's challenging. Although the, the, the Continental Lobby is easier because it's primarily, uh, it's much easier to play... Uh, orchestral music against action just there's less conflict of frequency content and uh, the amount of distortion because when you start putting in techno and distorted uh, synthesizers and guitars it tends to clash more with sound effects i think primarily because distortion characteristics and frequency response so we didn't have as much issue in the lobby but there was the motorcycle sequence originally had a cue which had a lot of uh, buzzy guitars and they sounded exactly like the motorcycles. It was very difficult. So we had to bob and weave, pushing different elements of, you know, featuring more percussion stuff during the motorcycles as opposed to the legato guitars because they just felt like motorcycles. So depending on the scene, you push certain elements of the music. And eventually when we got into Atmos, it was mm-hmm. you were able to push the music off the screen a little bit and separate it away from the sound effects. Yeah, such as like the motorcycle chase on the bridge, it got to the point where I think Andy said, I don't think we need to play the cue here. We're going to go music to here, we'll sound effects to here, and then back again. And uh, so instead of worrying about all the competitive nature of all those different frequencies happening at the same time, it just really helped open everything up and gave it a lot of clarity. That scene on the bridge, for those who haven't seen the film yet... Keanu Reeves, sorry, John Wick, is uh, trying to elude some people who are chasing him on motorcycles. He's on a motorcycle himself. There's music on a long shot of the city skyline, and you see the motorcycles on the highway along the waterfront. Then they go onto a bridge, and as all the motorcycles enter the shot, the music comes out. And for probably, you guys might know, like a minute and a half maybe, there's no music. It's all sound effects. But the motorcycles become the music because they're constantly shifting gears. There's never a continuous drone of motorcycle. They're constantly switching gears, changing paces, uh, and that becomes the score. And because it's almost distorted like motorcycle sound, like you were saying, it starts sounding like a guitar riff. that way through everybody. I mean, from the way that uh, Chad shot it and Evan cut it and eventually how we worked on the sound. That's one of the few... We did record motorcycles for that scene so we could have, you know, different... Same bike but with different mufflers, in a way, to give them a different sound and, and, and give Martin the ability and the Atmos space to really move them all around you as the bikes moved because... You know, the camera would move, you'd lose track of one, but it really was going around behind you and the camera would come back and there it is. So sonically, all that is tracked in that scene. And then samurai swords on top of that. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, and samurai swords. Motorcycles and samurai swords. It's got to be a first, but... It's a pretty impressive scene. Yeah. Because there's no, basically no dialogue other than grunts and no music. It's all just motorcycles and swords. The occasional gunshot, I guess. But it's a quite, quite an impressive minute and a half. I'm sure it took a while. It did take a while because for all the previews, we didn't have motorcycles recorded. So we were working with other recordings and knowing eventually that we'd want to go out and record specifically that for that scene. But uh, it was a lot of fun stuff to try, you know. Andy, to go back to uh, the hotel lobby shootout, you were mentioning how it's a little easier to mix because it was orchestral music. Is that something that you've talked about with the director and the composer to try and get that in there, or did they know it on their own instinctively? Well, I think that that cue and the way it was shaped and all the perspectives were going back and forth between hotel rooms and in the lobby, and, and it was just playing on a Victrola, basically, in, uh, in Winston's office. That was all, I think, engineered from picture department. And it was actually kind of cool because he had um, speakerphone in his, in his Avid. And so he actually exported his IRs, and we used the same IRs in the final mix. So it was, it was a really good synergy of stuff coming from editorial. We actually used some of his reverb programs that he used in the, in the Avid. The classic example of the synergy on, on these films you guys are working with different level editors, picture editors than I am. I wouldn't trust the IRs, any of this. Well, Evan's, Evan's very in tune with sound and, you know, he's very detail oriented, very technically savvy and uh, an incredibly cool guy. And it's just a pleasure working with him every time. Yeah. I mean, he's that perfect combination of uh, really supporting the process and, and but letting you try and do things as well. So, yeah. Were all three John Wicks in Atmos? No, uh, this was the only one that was in Atmos. And it was a retrofit because we originally mixed it 7-1 and then we up up mixed it uh, at the end and did the Atmos and the IMAX after the 7-1 was mixed. We're mixing the movie in 7-1 and we saw a poster for John Wick 3 now in IMAX and we kind of had to call up the studio. <laughs> Do you know that the poster says IMAX and we're not mixing IMAX? <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way. <laughs> That, that, and that was hard because you don't you have to try to make the the sub work. And I was riding the high pass filters on every single gunshot and punch, trying to match the the Atmos subwoofer. And it, it took a long time, but it turned out really, really well. So with part three being in Atmos, how did that change your uh, preparation for it? Music wise, I kind of had my ammo set up in the seven one session, so I was prepared. So I was panning with, with how I would normally pan the music in Atmos in the 7-1. So it wasn't a big upstep. I was kind of already ready for it on the music front. Mark, you can speak to what you guys did for effects. Yeah, no, it was, it was basically set up, you know, 7-1-2 and effects as well. And, and Martin definitely did some panning and, and imaging there and then adjusted it when we went to an Atmos stage. You know, John Wick 1 was probably, I think, 5-1-2. Yeah, it was 5-1, yeah. 7-1 and this one, Atmos, so... I don't know what format would be next if there happens to be another one. Yeah, it's going to have 17 subwoofers, one under each seat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. So is there any scene that we haven't talked about that you guys had a lot of fun working on or you felt turned out really well? I'd say the museum fight or the book fight are two scenes that, turned, yeah. that I'm really happy with. The book fight's pretty fun. book fight is pretty fun because that's, that's the fun thing about the John Wick movies. It's always the unexpected, like... Who would have thought it would have gone down that way? (laughs) I'm particularly happy with Winston's dialogue in the glass room when he's talking to John Wick. That's that's now become my uh, 
reel where I check uh, check my speaker check when I go into a new room for dialogue as well. I thought that turned it's nice and rich, but it has high in detail. I was really pleased with the dialogue in that scene. You know, it's interesting. I, I did a uh, little show and tell talk with uh, Evan a while back where he brought the museum fight as it was shot. The big knife fight. You know, not as it ends up in the final film with basically no knives or uh, just a handle and and uh, all, all the little greens things and all the, uh, oh, cool. the parts that weren't there. And then to see how it was able to evolve. And um, like uh, Luke Giblian, who was the editor of that scene, spent, I was thinking, three plus weeks cumulatively over the course of the film just on that scene. And Dan O'Connell and all the foley and all the little pieces that went into it. And at the end, it feels like it's pretty natural, like it maybe was shot that way. Yeah. And that's another scene, too, where there's a lot of production where all those stunt actors did that. I mean, yeah, there's some things added here and there, but it's primarily the production. Yeah, like so, 90%. Yeah. Oh, and even things like, you know, the gunshots, just because it was like the, the homage to the good, bad, and the ugly, put a full-on Western, you know, long, echoey gunshot in, even though, yeah, <laughs> it's not appropriate for the scene, but it, it was fun. Because at that point, you're just kind of having fun with a sequence like that. Yeah, it looked like a lot of fun. The other thing that I think you guys probably had some fun with were the animals in it. Between the horses and the dogs, there's some serious uh, groin trauma going on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, the, the dogs were a lot of fun. That was something that happened early on. And uh, Luke did those sounds as well. Just because even for a screening and to get the studio and the audience understanding how visceral it was going to be, that's the sound that had to be in there even early on. So even though they're a Belgian mar, I'm not going to pronounce it correctly, but um, you know the, the sounds are just whatever sounded the most vicious. Sometimes it's wolves, you know, for the attacks, wolves that were made for other films. I just I don't remember what the actual dog recordings were. I just whatever was the most nasty sounding dog <laughs> barks though definitely were what made it in and that scene actually had some interesting atmos aspects as well um because like if the dogs were up high in the screen yeah. Uh, Martin put them up high on the screen. And um, when you watch and see that and hear that film at Atmos, it's just amazing how much everything just moves around you and just puts you literally in the middle of that scene. Yeah, this scene is set up really interestingly for Atmos because there's two levels to it. Yeah. yeah. They kind of end up in the middle of this kind of courtyard and there's a walkway that surrounds the courtyard like a story above. So the dogs end up up there at some points fighting people. And so for Atmos, I can imagine that would be quite a playground. Well, that was a scene too where Chad felt like he didn't get all the coverage that he wanted. So there were a lot of visuals added in just to uh, keep things as active as he would have initially wanted because they didn't always have time to squib the setup and do everything else. So there's just a lot of sound work to support that to keep it going. Yeah, we had to keep the, you know, when we're on Keanu, we had to keep the other fight present sonically. So there's, there's group voices and punches and gunshots going on off camera so because there was two fights happening throughout the scene we had to keep that keep the off camera stuff alive and that was it's tricky to do that and not make it distracting yeah but those, it was it was fun because those scenes in different locations it was great to be able to contrast new york with morocco soundscape wise as he travels through the desert and get to the tent where the elder is quite different from the the density of new york that's for sure 
One of my favorite little sound environments in the film is when they go on the walking tour of the ballet school and go through the like room with the wrestling and then they walk oh, yeah. through having a conversation with the while the girls are practicing their ballet. It's very like demented Wes Anderson or something all of a sudden <laughs> these scenes. It, it was really cool little vibe all of a sudden in the middle of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, but isn't that the cool stuff about John Wick is you get um, glimpses and insights into this underworld you never imagined existed or how it exists. Um, I think that's what keeps it interesting. It's not just all about action and and shootouts and fights and what have you. It's 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 got a pretty solid um, background in its uh, you know its story and 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 you keep peeling it back like you know layers of an onion, which is nice. Yeah. And then sonically, there's some cool transitions all the way through the theater from out front with the ballet dancer. Then you go backstage, you're still hearing music from out front. And then you're hearing the, the fighting going on before you enter the room. And then you start hearing the music from the next ballet room. And then that ballet music goes all the way into the meet, meeting with, uh, with the grand lady. It, so there's a lot of really cool uh, background and music transitions all through those four or five rooms they go through. It also features the sound that made me wince the most. There's a million people getting shot in the head and stabbed and stuff, but the shot of the woman peeling her toe there? Oh, God. Oh. That's awesome. Oh, I'm going to vomit just thinking about it. That was a little too effective, guys. Yeah. Well, visually, you know, you have some goo snapping off. It was pretty, it's pretty visceral just to look yeah. at it. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, you take that artist's pain and take it to a whole new level. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, guys, for taking the time to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. Congratulations on the uh, MPSC Award nomination. Good luck with that. And uh, hopefully we'll have you on again someday soon when you have another project to talk about. Cool. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks. I really, really appreciate it. Bye. Film Bitters is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 